is my uh, right, this is. is where I'm gonna be at for this All podcast. Right. We're going with we're going with some nice high levels here, but we can make it work. Uh, yeah, I just you know I, I'm trying to talk into the talk around. You know what they they say? Talk around the mic. Talk around the mic. The mic is your aura. Put your aura around the mic. Oh, I sound over here. It is not a. Your sound is. The, I want my sound to be emblematic of who I am as a person. Your sound is the tortilla, and the mic is the filling. Don't let it be a burrito bowl. Surround the mic with your sound. You know? That's what they say. That's what they say. Off to a great start. So, obviously, August 28, be with you. Um... It is, we are nearing the end of August, this godforsaken month. It is 100 degrees and terrible. Um, but thankfully, and I'm just going to skip it to this this week. We're talking about video games and table games. You've heard it. You've heard it. You come here every week. You've heard the the whole, we're going to, also, by the way, um, uh, uh, So Very Wrong About Games had an opening recently that was where they were t- they were saying that they're going to talk about you know fishing or I forgot what it was but they were talking about different things and they're like let's do it differently this week let's talk about tabletop games board games and it was like everyone is eating our lunch we are out there we are the yeah we are the pioneers of these dumb jokes and the crazy thing is that people don't even know because they don't even listen Although, they're not even listening to it but they're stealing uh, the I'm, jokes of people they're not even listening to I I need to level with you I need to be honest with you about something. I stole that opening from I stole that opening from the besties. No, uh, it's a podcast with Justin McElroy, and he would always open it up by saying, like, uh, this is the podcast where we discuss the best of sports, furniture, yada, yada. And then he says, but this week we're focusing on video games. Uh, my confession is that that whole bit is stolen from them. OK, so. So very wrong about games stole it from us who stole it from the besties or more realistically, so very wrong about games came to that conclusion uh, as uh, did other people before us. In the words of Flip Meusen, if you steal from one person, it's plagiarizing. If you steal from many people, it's research. Yeah. Wow. The whole world (laughs) really makes you think no one exists in a vacuum. You steal from one person, you steal from the world, right? That guy, that guy had it figured out. Yeah, he's on to something. Are you on to anything? Uh, that's a that's a little too direct for me. <laughs> I don't know how to answer a question. So, so what is your what so is your things this week? week? What makes James James? Um, Kachapas. I guess so. It's probably Kachapas because I think that at this point. My body is about 30% plantain. Okay, so you are 60% water, 30% plantain, 10% gamer. That's right. Uh, 10% gamalier, or or whatever the word is for an enthusiast. A P-top. Back in my day when someone played games, we could just call them a gamer. But nowadays, you need to have all these different words. I don't know what any of them are, so don't ask me. Soy boy. These days, we call gamers soy boys. Yep. Yeah, that's it. Uh, 
So this is a podcast about games. Uh, Prove it. And we're doing a really bad job about that this week. I know. I mean, we're so, like two seconds in, so don't judge. So what games have you been gaming um, this past week? I mean, I feel like I'm doing a lot of board gaming. So we'll get on to that. I feel like we have, we both had a big, big week in board gaming. And I feel like you especially had a big week in board gaming. Um, for me, though, uh, if we're starting with E and not P, which is our usual, um, because we have to, you know, we got... We, the, 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 the E is grandfathered in, and the P is the new. But um, uh, the for, cult my, of the new. for my E, um, a little bit of Dead Cells and Iconoclast on Twitch. Um, Ooh, on, on Switch, on sorry. Switch? On Switch. Both of them. Um, uh, I haven't done enough Dead Cells, Dead Cells on Switch, but I have. I feel like I've done enough to say that I'm happy that it's on Switch and I will continue to play it because it is on that platform, but it's worse on that platform that it is on Steam with a controller. Um, yeah, that makes sense. It just feels worse. I don't know. It feels more sluggish. I, I can't really tell. Like, it's not necessarily well, like a frame. frame rate I heard things about does. frame rates, but I, I didn't. I don't necessarily like notice anything yet on uh, frame rates. But it feels like little simple stuff. Like um, the jump feels like heavier. Like it feels like when I jump, I like get nothing off the air. Whereas like in the Switch version, I feel like I'm more uh, like Prince of Persia. And with the Switch version, the Steam version, I'm more Prince of Persian. With the Switch version, I'm more like, uh, you know, Goku with the weighted vest. Pre uh, hyperbo- yes, hyperbolic that... time chamber, pre gravity uh, gravity chamber, and everything like that. You know, um, this is definitely a reference that I get. I mean, it wasn't a very, it wasn't a very good reference. I mean, it, it the I just said it was weighted vest, so. I mean, it, it, the reference itself kind of clears up what it's possibly about. Um, but so, I, so Dead Cells, though, you're you're enjoying it. How far did you get in the PC version and how did it feel to start over? Um, it doesn't feel bad to start over. It does feel like sad. And, and I think I would say again that uh, that there are oh, it doesn't feel bad at all. And it, it doesn't feel sad either. It, I, I just think that there's certain things that the game should give you quicker up front. Um, I, I really like eventually unlocking like the random melee and random ranged um, that, that come on later. Like you get to unlock a perk that is like you get a, me- a random melee of your unlocked blueprints and a random range of your unlocked blueprints. And because of that, it adds a little bit more like roguelike element to it where you start off a run and sometimes you get something you don't like, but you're just trying to make do with it and maybe you actually start to like it a little bit more, appreciate it. Or you start off a run and you immediately have stuff you love and you're feeling great uh, from the get-go. So that I kind of dislike not having this time over again. I have not played like a lot of it at all, like 10, 20 minutes or so. So the the only thing I've really unlocked is like the health, uh, some of the the first gold uh, perk and the blood sword is the is like literally the only things that i really have unlocked right now um so but i've been still i've been playing more iconoclast than anything because that's newer to me um and that Not game on the switch yeah on the switch on the switch i didn't know that it was on the switch yeah. um, so did you play that on pc or did no you play that i bought it on, on pc switch? And I neglected it, and then I bought it on the Switch eventually, and I felt like that's a better spot. Iconoclast does feel perfect for Switch, though. Like, uh, no surprise, uh, a game that is, like, 
sort of a Metroidvania or whatever, explore up whatever you would want to call them. Um, explore work, them up. That's what I've always called them. Works well on the Switch, and it continues to both have some pretty cool puzzly elements and really, really impressive writing. Uh, so that game is that game is just all right, but it's not doing enough. I don't think that like I feel outstandingly excited to play it. I just feel like it's great. Why did you it's choose good. to go with Iconoclasts instead of uh, Hollow Knight? Um, I did play. I, I was playing a little bit of Hollow Knight, and it was the second time in a row that it just kind of didn't sink in yet. Maybe it's just not for you. Maybe this is not your genre anymore. It used to be really hard my genre. Um, and I don't know. When was that? Uh, like, when do you remember the last time you really liked one of these games? The last time I, like, loved, loved one of these games? I don't know. Maybe Metroid Fusion. That's the the, the 3DS one? Is that is that the one? I think that, yeah. No, that was earlier than yeah. that, I think. Fusion? Wow. Fusion was so on. Been, Fusion might have been, been on Advance or something. I forget. So it's been a it's been a minute. Yeah, I mean, I used to like them, um, but just like in all things, you know, your taste changes. Even in, in board games, I've seen that change probably the most rapidly. So, you know. Oh, are your tastes already changing? It. I mean, they've changed from the beginning of the year. In the beginning of the year, I would have said like, yeah, I would never want I, Gloomhaven all the way. Why the hell would I ever want to play something called Food Chain Magnate? That's, that's not ridiculous that you would ever consider. That's that's so weird. So you think that theme actually like is very meaningful to you? Theme was huge is hugely meaningful to me, and also was a huge is a huge defining point for board games because it's more so than even video games. I mean, I've always like I, I've I've always been about aesthetics, and uh, that being one of the first things that. That like aesthetics come first, and then after that, I take a look to see whether or not the other things I like are good enough to get in. There's usually few things that I truly, truly enjoy without immediately gravitating to the aesthetics, and then afterwards finding out whether or not the thing is actually for me. And uh, like, there's certain things that I feel like ride on their aesthetics alone. Um, like, uh, I don't know, Kingdom Death Monster is something that I, like, super love this year. I, I haven't been playing it recently because I'm at this part where I'm afraid of continuing because uh, everyone that I love is going to get killed. But uh, uh, that that game, I feel like, kind of rides on its aesthetics, and it definitely, like, got me interested initially on on that. And uh, there's uh, Gloomhaven, I feel like, has got some really unique aesthetics, and I love the races and the world. I feel like a lot of my games I like initially but, but are drawn now to. You would play games in spite of their aesthetics. I mean I played or... I played Gaia Project, right? Isn't that the biggest proof that I could ever that's like that's like when you say, I can't be racist, I have a black friend. Like I, now I'm allowed oh, to say I would ouch. What? Hmm. I don't say that. I'm just racist. But with Gaia Project, uh I'm I because I played it before and, and I enjoy it and I own it, I'm allowed to say you know, I'm not purely about aesthetics, you know, like I'll play something that looks like dog donk, but I will enjoy it all the way through if it's that good. All right. So have you played Castles of Burgundy yet? I have not. I what I did what's, do. What's holding you back? I don't know who I would play it with. I mean, I could play it with my LTCP. Play with Priya. Yeah, I yeah. could play it with my LTCP and that might be a cool experience. Um, I would have to know the rules pretty well to be a... Uh, 
to be a proper you know what you know it's kind of hard sometimes to be a good uh ambassador for a game to be the good uh cu- like curator or whatever we would call it someone who drops that game down and they are the one who you look for for the rulings for they all they know all the rules they do the original explanation for people who are confused and whenever something happens and someone says can you do this or how does this work You're like you got to be quick on it and i don't really like it when people don't are like have to keep looking at the rule book sometimes you have some is- i have some issues with that kind of stuff uh so i'd, re- I'd really want to know beforehand and maybe if i had played it with you before and i just recognized it and knew how to roll with it and could explain it better but it's i, th- I find the that the problem it's- is yeah is that you are often so very wrong about games that's not that, that is a uh, i think that is a truly unfair i think that it, i think that is like a a meme I think that's a truly unfair thing to say about uh, us, and that's like a thing in our friend group. So for people who aren't in our friend group, which I assume is listeners, uh, unless they're all the ones in our friend group, which is just sad. But uh, we, uh, when I'm the one bringing over the game and explaining the rules, uh, there have been times where I haven't gotten the rules right on the first time. And I don't have that same... I, I, I mean, this this could be a whole discussion in and of itself. I don't have that exact same feeling towards, like... It's not about... It's not that I feel laissez-faire with the rules, or it's not that I feel like I am allowed to make constant rules, like, flubs, and that it's fine. Uh, it's just that if, like, one or two rules don't get perfect, like completely and they're not like completely detrimental to the experience and you still get to play through and and uh understand the experience and generally the designer intent and if there's one or two rules that got slightly flubbed along the way that like you try to improve it next time and like the way income works in scythe what like the way enlist works in scythe yeah or the way that uh you pay for production we never got that wrong the, the, you or said that we? we got that wrong we never got that wrong that was that was we we i did not change that rule the way production works is you pay for what it's showing you currently on the uh, on the the map. What, I don't know what what did what did you think it was? Well, I'll tell you this: I I certainly made a mistake the first time that we were playing. So what were what were you doing? Because you said that, but I was playing with the current with the the correct rules for the production. The Pro- first time that we played Scythe, the first time that we sat down to play Scythe, and and this is uh, this is not e games by the way, but here we are. Uh, the first time that I thought I essentially what I did was I purchased my my meeples by spending those resources. So I purchased the meeples on. by spending the resources that were under. How would meeples be under if you're going to a village? I thought that I was paying that amount to buy the meeples from the village. That's what I thought. Paying what amount? It never shows you the amount that it says pay, and then it lists like the uh, the power, the popularity. Yeah, that would you be paying? You you do pay for for it if you produce. I and, thought that I just pay unlocked. one time. The first time that we did it, I thought that I paid just the one time to uh, produce those specific meeples. Oh no! As opposed to yeah. using them every time that I produce. No, no, we put, I, I, maybe I didn't explain it or something correct, like fully correctly, but I was playing with that rule. 
Well, that could be why I won so big that first time, but doesn't explain how I lost so hard that second time. Yeah. I mean, Scythe is... Scythe is weird because the the rules in themselves aren't too they're not too heavy, but there comes a lot of like and this is not an example of a time that's confusing, but I feel like there are a lot of confusing moments sometimes with Scythe with like how things resolve. Uh, there's even stuff that like I've never even thought of that uh, you can do. It kind of gets back into the 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 whole like thing about video games and how it's kind of one of the greatest things about that medium that uh, the rules are baked into the game. So, like, you are allowed to do something. You, you do something and you are allowed to do it because you did it. And if you weren't allowed to do it or there's an issue with it, then, like, you can't make that jump. Then it then they, they don't have to explain to you the rule is that you currently can't make that jump yet because you need to get double jump. You just simply cannot. And that's, and that's how that is explained. Um, and you don't need to necessarily know a bunch of rules you can just poke at the way that the game works and with with the board game like the the kind of the most insane thing about board games that there's there's something about this is that we all agree to sit down take a bunch of pieces out of a box and put them on a board or take out cards or something and uh agree that like these are the way these things work and that there's rule like these are the rules that govern these things and we all have to kind of almost imagine a like this rule set in our head as we're playing but they're not governed by any actual physical rules yeah and that's been the case for thousands of years right yeah i mean that's not a that's not a new thing but i just think it's i think it's weird going from 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 specifically e-games and playing games where designers give you the rules and they they build it in with the code and and there's no question about it you don't really need to like read a manual before you start playing uh, most video games but with all tabletop games you can read the manual and maybe you miss a rule or forget a rule or maybe sometimes the manual is done poorly to begin with and maybe some for sometimes i've seen before that they don't necessarily explain how an interaction will work until you maybe look in the back for for a frequently uh like screwed up rules they even the fact that the manuals even have that uh, a whole section of frequently messed up rules or things that people frequently forget is a testament to the fact that that is a part of the medium is that people play it and sometimes if you're especially like if you haven't played it before or you haven't poured over the rule book and studied it like you were studying for a test and you're the one, the only one explaining it, that sometimes you're going to get one or two things wrong and then you're going to play through with that. Like, we've you've done that before, too. I, I don't think that there's been so many times uh-huh. that that I've done it that I that I, I, I don't and I don't do it actively. Like, I don't um, uh, like revel in that. At all. So I, I think that this is an interesting discussion because I, I think that video games are the weird outlier here, not board games of like the fact that in video games, the rules are so, uh, you know, succinctly defined and, and absolute. That's that seems to be the real outlier, because I, I think that board games are more representative of all walks of life where like the actual rules of society are not you know, fixed, let's well, say, because you can do things that you're not supposed to do. Sure. And there are consequences for those things. But uh, 
essentially the following of rules, it's not it's not so alien, right? Whereas with video games, that's that's where it actually gets kind of weird. Sure. And maybe that's a little out there, but I mean there there's a there's a philosophical argument to that, sure. It just it, but the weird thing, I mean, it, 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 like you're you're not wrong about that, but the weird thing is that when you're talking about a game, then you're talking about like all these systems that are happening at the same time. Like in a society, like in a game, you're not doing something illegally unless you you know reach over and stab another person because they they stole the piece that you were waiting for in Mad King Ludwig. They you, but you can tell you can flub something or get something wrong in that case. You can be like breaking the rules the entire time secretly without knowing it you can have like house rules that basically add a god mode to like you, you know what we're superseding these rules f- legally on for this sit down it's it's yeah yeah i know what you mean uh but i guess the the uh you know the alpha and the omega of this conversation is just that you're not into metroidvanias anymore huh I, I don't know how we got there, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, but you are into but okay, Iconoclast really isn't a Metroidvania though. That's the thing is that it's more narrative focused than anything else. It's more of a narrative focus with a nearly Zelda like. It's more Zelda like than anything, where you are going down a path and encountering puzzles and then getting upgrades that help you. Uh, navigate those puzzles in different ways and finding uh, story beats. So to say what that is I Zelda, like, if not a Metroidvania. Well, it's not, but there's the, this is why we have genres. This is why people. This is why Smash Brothers is not a fighting game, and why that's not a bad thing. Smash Brothers is a Euro. Smash Brothers is a Euro. It is a Euro. It's a heavy Euro, and that's why some people can't get into it. But. Um, yeah, other video games I've been playing. Dragon Ball Fighters had the cooler video released. Cooler, the character. Cooler than what? Oh, okay. Oh, sorry about that. I, um, and uh, I don't know. Soul Calibur. I'm kind of excited in the future for Soul Calibur Six. Speaking of fighting games, that's on How my mind. How far out is that? Uh, that is October, tenth. Huh. That is a bit far out. It's a, it's a little bit far out. Um, Cooler and another character, which is very likely Android 17, who is already in the game, um, will release late September. So that's that. Uh, haven't you, uh, As you said to me before, which I don't think I'm keeping on the podcast, uh, I haven't played uh, World, but that is I look to remedy that after this podcast. I am at I am uh, yeah, at the Rathalos so, though. I feel like the Rathalos that's the red one, right? Not the Rath the Rathian is the green. That's right. Yeah, the Rathalos is giving me a little bit of problems. Um and I feel like I'm starting to be at the point where uh I had all the fun that I could have and I'm now getting I, I got a lot further than the Rathalos in World on PS4. Um, but I feel like I'm starting to be at the point where I've had the fun and now the game is more about is more serious and uh, I can't just play a weapon sloppily. I have to start uh, doing much better because the the beginning of Monster Hunter World is very easy. um, And now I need to start more looking for the openings that work for that specific weapon and learning that weapon better. Um, uh, in Monster Hunter 
World on PS4, I played Insect Lave all the way up to the Rathalos and further than that. And because of that, I had a closer, I had a better mastery of the Insect Lave. And I didn't, I don't think the Rathalos even killed me once. I didn't have any problems with it. And not that I'm dying like a million times. I, I, I did one attempt at the Rathalos the last time I had played. But, uh, or maybe two. Maybe I had, had I've had two failed attempts, one with a bow and one with a charge blade. But uh, now I'm getting to the point where I can't just play those weapons sloppy. I need to start learning them for real, not just like you know doing whatever I want. And I need to start actually learning those weapons to play them more efficiently. And uh, I'm not gonna let yeah. that slow me down though. I'm I'm excited I, to put more time in. I, I really kind of narrowed it down at this point where the weapons I'd be the most interested in currently are bow, charge blade, switch axe, and I might want to return to the insect lave. Yeah, uh, obviously, I would tell you that you are still in the babby version of the game. I don't uh, think for, I don't think that I'm not. I, this is the yeah. This is like in a. Uh, I feel like Rathalos is at least in this playthrough for me kind of like Bloodborne when you're fighting that first boss and it's easy for someone who is a big fan of the series or has played with it to say like no you're still in joke mode it doesn't get hard until X boss but you know X boss um but um for a person that has kind of wiffle waffled on the franchise uh this is this is one of the first big like check yourself before maybe... check yourself or I will wreck yourself Maybe one of the first monsters that requires some um, patience. But I do think that hunting a Rathalos with a bow is one of my favorite things. Um, I got really close. I had, like, gotten him to the point where he's limping and his wings are all messed up. And then I just, I, I think I just got, like, a one-hit kill kind of thing where he just turned towards me. I didn't have the stamina to roll. And he just did a big old firebolt. And then it was it. Yeah. Sometimes that's, you gotta know fault. it's coming because you know, you gotta bite the bullet, or the bullet bites you. Yeah, there are some pretty like specific patterns with Rathalos, and some of them are really easy to figure out. Like if he's on the ground and he roars and steam starts to come out of his mouth, then the next thing he's gonna do is a tail flip. He's gonna get in the get in the air, do a tail flip. I hate that as soon tail as flip. He roars. As soon as he roars, you gotta you gotta roll away from him because the tail flip is coming and it will poison you. See, I don't have a problem with this. Actually, I really like World, and I think World is going to make it easily. World came out this year, right? It did. It's amazing. I, I think that World could actually make it on my top three. It could probably make it on mine, too. And uh, that the improvements they have done, I kind of have, I, 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 I was playing more World last since last we spoke, and... Uh, I don't know. I just had this moment with with that game, and I'm still, you know, anyone who played that game knows where I'm at, so I'm not ridiculously far or anything like that. I had this moment where just I knew that the improvements and what they've done to that game, I I can't go back. Um, I can't go back from an open world. I can't go back from the interesting ecosystem, from vigor wasps paralyzed toads i can't go back from the scout flies that is so amazing it is incredible they made a crazy awesome sick in universe uh, explanation for like a navigation marker kind of thing that leads you to your prey after you've kind of found it and researched it enough 
and uh just the 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 how gorgeous the game is and and the the creative worlds that they've baked up like like the coral forest what is that coral highlands the or whatever coral it is highlands. that area is a absolute delight to transverse and uh even just you know the stuff the from that they've done from minute to minute uh how kind of dynamic your character is um when you are going down a heavy slope and your character just starts to slide or you jump off that and grab onto you know a vine and swing on it there's just so much going on in that game that is such a massive improvement that i feel like it's kind of impossible for me to look backwards looking forwards if they came out with another monster hunter game that had these mechanics or further them then i'll buy it day one but if you want to make a game that kind of goes back to that old kind of more gamey monster hunter then i think uh, i'm not as interested which maybe can lead us to uh monster hunter world generate monster hunter generations yeah, Universe, so I was in United. the I was in the village this this uh, weekend, and I was walking by my friendly local game store. So I was like, oh, I should just see if they've got Monster Hunter. It's not out yet. It's four days early, but I'll just see. And they did. So I bought it, and I've been playing that. And that is Monster Hunter Generations with more monsters. And it's it's tough because part of me thought like, oh, Monster Hunter World is so good that I can't go back. But then Generations Ultimate is like, it's got 93 monsters. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, but that's not and necessarily, that's it. not, is that a problem with Monster Hunter World? And there, and Capcom has, oh, yeah. has done, it, I mean, yeah, it is, but that's not a problem with like, the, like the aspect, the Monster Hunter World itself is phenomenal, but Capcom needs to put in more monsters and then it'll, and then it could be as good. But like, the, like, when you're going backwards to generations, it's not that it's a better game for any aspect other than the variety of monsters, which is a big and it's deal. It's portable. It's portable. And it's got styles. And okay. the styles are sick. You kind of didn't sell me on styles, though. Like, I just. Styles didn't... are pretty fun. I mean, in a game where you're supposed to be hunting with other people and, like, hunting solo is a challenge, it's really cool to have this additional, like, boon of the powers and styles which just make you so strong and so like can do essentially where there's where all of these weapons can do all of these different things and you have all of these super moves that can like charge you up and make you feel powerful which is a thing that is not indicative of the monster hunter series that's pretty cool yeah uh, i'm not saying that's better than monster hunter world but i am saying it's portable okay and there's a lot of it that's a fact and I can play it in places where I can't play Monster Hunter World. So I've got I've got my bases covered on what I'm doing. Because at home, I'm playing Monster Hunter World. And when I'm out, I'm playing Monster Hunter Generations Ultimate, which just has so many syllables. Yes. Uh, but I don't know what, I'll, what I could tell you about Generations Ultimate because I've only really started getting into it. Uh, there is a save transfer tool where essentially you're moving your save from your DS onto your Switch. So one thing that's been really weird is trying to reacclimate myself and be like, okay, so what are all of these systems in this game? Uh, what gear do I have? What quests have I completed? 
and uh, what am I supposed to do next? So mostly what I've been doing is just like reacclimating myself to what was going on because Monster Hunter has a ton of systems. Even Monster Hunter World has a ton of systems and Generations Ultimate has even more for better or worse with all of the, uh, you know, you have your your palicos and there's like eight different types of palicos that can learn dozens of different moves and you can train some to learn moves that it can't naturally learn. And then like their, you know, their capabilities change not just on that, but on what their equipment has. And, and that's just one part of it. That's just one system. Then remembering like, okay, so I'm using this weapon with this art. If I do this quest, then I'll upgrade this uh, art to have this new effect. And it's just a lot of stuff. And it's been a long road to reacclimate myself, but I'm playing uh, the dual blades and I'm starting with the adept style, which is essentially just, if you roll at the right moment, uh, you get massive invincibility and movement f and like uh, movement abilities. But the next style that I'm going to is Valor. Valor is one of the new styles introduced with Generations Ultimate, which essentially allows you to do all of these like parries with every weapon. And as you do like these parries and these blocks, you charge up this meter. And once it's charged, you get access to like extreme amounts of mobility and attacks for a short period of time. So that's what I'm going to work with next. Essentially, what I'm trying to do is I'm going to just use Generations Ultimate to exploit the strongest, most powerful combinations of weapons and styles and arts so that I can see as much of the game as possible going through it primarily solo. Because something that's different in the older games, and this was thankfully changed in Monster Hunter World, is that in older Monster Hunter games, you had the village, which was your solo content, and then you had the gathering hub, which was always scaled to multiplayer. So even if you wanted to do the gathering hub quests by yourself, the monsters are going to be scaled up. And in the past, I've had no problem going through those quests solo, it takes a while. But I think that by, you know, harnessing the best that the game has to offer in terms of like busted bullshit style and weapon combinations, I could end up seeing a lot more of this game uh, for myself without joining multiplayer. And I will do some multiplayer, but I don't know. I like, I like playing this game away from Wi-Fi, like on the subway. Okay. And that's that's the Monster Hunter Minute. It's a good year for Monster Hunter. It is a great year for Monster Hunter. And it's also a great year for the Switch. I, I feel like every moment has been a good moment for the Switch, increasingly. But I do feel like... I don't know if I was saying this before, but I do feel like we, we're, we're past the point where we really need some better curation on Nintendo's end. Uh, for that, sure. That uh, eShop is kind of starting to be a huge, huge mess. I wish that there were a better way to organize it or look at it for big releases that I generally care about rather than, like, small, weird, sometimes, like, cash-grab indies. And that game and that uh, platform is kind of, like, starting to be breach that issue that Steam had where it has right now where just everything comes out for it. And 
everyone is producing stuff for it. So, like, you go to the recent releases and you have to just kind of scroll forever to find something. Yeah, but they've but they yeah, and on this on Steam they've got like the recommended for you, and they they don't call it the store; they call it your store. Yeah, because the store on Steam is like tailored for you. Yeah, that'd be cool if they did something like that. I feel like that's a bit above Nintendo's capabilities. Um, but I don't know, maybe even just a, a more of a, the way that steam does it where like just a, like they have, I think they have a bestsellers, right? Something that was more like, yeah. like, like you go to the eShop and it's like, this is the big stuff that like people are buying and the big stuff that's coming out a little bit better, a little bit like more readably done. Yeah. You know, I was looking through the steam bestsellers today and you know what I saw on there? I saw a little game called for the king which recently just released on steam and is now a steam bestseller yeah it's a great game actually and now it's out so i mean if you were looking for an excuse to jump back in i wonder if they've done big uh updates for it but yeah well i i guess they released it so that's a pretty big update i guess so i hope that that actually uh i hope that that actually means something more sometimes you just say like yeah we want gold or whatever. You ever think about revisiting For Honor? Because I hear that game's doing pretty well. A little bit, I guess. I don't know. I don't know if I ever really loved it, though. I definitely sucked too much at it. And I feel like I would be really worried about jumping into For Honor when it was already a game that kind of has its own. It's kind of a fighting game where you have to have a pretty unbelievable knowledge on enemies and your character and like how that matchup works and uh like meter management and stuff like that and i didn't do it before well when it came out and that would be a scary proposition to try and do it now after i've been out for a long time well you know that uh they also just did a big free thing with it where most of the game is free now so i bet that turned on a lot of new people Maybe. I don't know. I mean, did they get out all the really wonky knocking people off everywhere over and over again? Just like, you know, shield bashing everyone. And Oh, I've got no idea. Because remember when that game came out and like, despite anything, like I the initial I, I remember the initial thought was, man, that's pretty lame that you can just knock people out all the time. And that the game kind of some people can just play it like constantly trying to ring out you. And then the thought after that after playing a little bit more was wait a minute but you can get better at positioning and then you start to really know the game and and then the thought after that was no that really is what the game is is that everyone just seems to be knocking everyone off all the time because why would you have like an intricate interesting fight if all you need to do is wait for one opportunity to knock someone off the stage and instantly kill them regardless of their health so you just stand by a thing and then just like, you know, you're that guy with the big with the big axe, the Viking that could just pick someone and like grab someone by their shoulder and then toss them behind you. And you just you stand near a wall and you just toss them off a wall into pits. So Very it's a good true. looking game. It's a good looking game, right? It's a pretty good looking game. You know what else is a good looking game? Root. Uh, I that got I, nice just as you were talking before, I got a finally got a uh, text message that Root uh, is shipping, but when I looked at it, it just says that uh, they created a label, and it's in Minnesota. 
Oh, that's where mine is. So your your route is probably going to arrive just around the same time as mine. And hey, that Riverfolk expansion sold out on their website, but at least I've got myself a copy of that. So do you do have I. the expansion? I did. You do. Oh wow! Look at that. Yep. Uh, I that guess game... there's not much to say about that game because yeah, we don't have because we still game. don't have it. But, but man, it's it's it, it's a weird it time on... in in board games. It's weird because the it, it's kind of. I find that it's going to be really exciting uh, to love the hobby as much as we do and to start being more on the cutting edge of things. That's really exciting because we've just we've just never been there. Um, and the cult, you want to be in that cult. Of yeah. The new. Yeah. It's kind of it's kind of neat. Like, I mean, I still I have games that came they released this year, like Azul is one of them. Um, but uh, I-, I feel like I'm, I'm really excited for uh starting to get, you know, Kickstarter games um, and starting to hear, like, about some of the production for that kind of stuff. So, like, Overlords is supposed to be around September, which is insane that they if they meet that that goal. And... Uh, oh, wait, you, uh, you backed Overlords as well? Yeah. Huh. This was before we, we had any sort of coordinated effort to save money. Um, and uh, I, I feel like I, I, I'm continually... I'm getting more and more excited for... Uh, Court of the Dead, Mourner's Call. That was one of the first things that I backed earlier on in the year, and that is supposed to be in December, and the company is sending out uh, updates on their uh, built-in um, organizer, which looks amazing. It's like a theme- thematic built-in organizer that looks so good. Um, and their production stuff and their final production uh, shipment of the different figures and all that and the final production artwork and stuff like that so that's really exciting and i don't have anything like it so i'm even more excited to have this really gorgeous uh game that uh has so much going on aesthetically and then kind of has a different genre than anything i'm used to so it's a drafting semi co-op game where that almost it's like it's like drafting semi-co-op worker placement, so that's something that I don't know that I have anything like that. So I'm excited to see how that works out, and it's and it's really co- going to be cool to be able to get that, and then for the first time, you know, get the the Kickstarter shipment and start seeing people talking about it, and not have necessarily like weeks or months or anything of coverage and people saying, "Oh yeah, that game's busted. You just play this, and this is the strategy that people figured out." You mean where people say just play Vagabond? Vagabond is so good. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. That will will that'll be interesting to see. Uh I I could see why people are complaining about that early. Um I wonder if they would ever do anything. I think they're wrong. Well, you haven't played it. I I haven't played it, but I've heard some of the ideas about it and I know we we should never root discussion, but the thing about the Vagabond is that it's harder to tell when he is succeeding compared to other people. Yeah, I mean that's that's a part of it, right? Presence and on the board. I, that wasn't the only thing that I heard people con, con, uh, concerned about and this again is a continuation of a conversation we shouldn't be having, but I think one of the big things that people had complained about was that with a lot of other units you just, you know, they start getting big and you can end the overall game like has this this war mechanic. So you go and you stomp out their areas and everyone starts to kind of realize like they're getting too far ahead. We need to all concerted effort stomp them down into being 
uh, kind of on our level. And with Vagabond, they're, they can start getting ahead and there's not really conventional ways to uh, to beat them. And that like, so I don't know everything about the game. I've, I've watched like a playthrough and, and not all of it has sunk in. But with a lot of other... Uh, with the other factions, someone gets ahead and the ways that you would beat them down help you out. So, you you know, you get in fights, you you take over their settlements and uh, you have your own factions way of doing that. And then getting into fights uh, causes you to get victory points. So so for balancing out the situation and realizing that someone's ahead or below and starting to get in fights will also help you out. But with the Vagabond, you can't do that. So it's harder. You, like the the character's faction has a much less conventional way of stymieing their progress and it doesn't necessarily help you out the way that uh, going and fighting one of the other factions for their territory uh, would. So how do you find games on Kickstarter that you choose to back? Um, How do I find games? I mean, I used to just kind of back things that... uh, it's it's not one or two things, right? Some of it is the overall like amount of money that's going into it sometimes. Like if yeah, there sure. if there's a hype behind it and it explodes and people are buying it and it doesn't seem sad and they're not just wait and you're not just waiting like desperately for the project to even be funded, then that's already a good start, right? And uh if the uh, if it looks, first of all, you know, it should look legitimate and not be like the millions yeah, of, of board games that are like look like someone's doing of, some yeah. goofy ass thing out of their out of their house that they have like no production quality for. But go on. So if it looks good, they've made things before. But in terms of the initial discovery, how are you finding them? Is it Board Game Geek? Is it Reddit? Are you combing through combing through Kickstarter quite literally, looking at the new releases and keeping up to date? literally on new releases on kickstarter and then reading through their whole thing watching videos if they have so few no there must be a lot there's a lot there's a kickstarter is like almost what i i almost am reading that more than reddit almost these days because uh between like the times that i get a chance to look at my phone or you get a good a good solid bathroom break in for for a big number two uh, you get I get to look through all the recent updates from all the projects I've I, I've either following or uh, have already backed and uh, and I get to look through all the new projects and read all what they're about and stuff like that. Um, I'm kind of finding now that I'm trying to be more uh, uh, I guess like discerning, yeah, more critical about what I'm backing because. For a while, I was just backing like everything that looked like it was legitimately going to come out, and I had any interest in it. And now I'm kind of uh, now that I'm like increasingly happy with what games I have, and I'm not necessarily yeah. like like there, there there was definitely a time where where when I realized I was pa- a couple months in when I started to realize that I was past enjoying the hobby and starting to love the hobby, uh, and looking further. Uh, you would see all these games that people are talking about that I don't have and I don't have any touchstone for, you know, the stuff like that I still don't have a touchstone for, like Castle Burgundy or something like that. And, yeah. you know, you, you work on that and you start remedying that and you find out what you like. And then now going into the future, I know a little bit more about stuff that I would have any interest in or would completely currently hate and yeah. all the stuff that I already have good versions of. And it's also a balancing act of like, 
it, it's like a slippery slope with board games because part of it is like, oh, there's these different genres of board games and I need different games that fit into these different genres so that I have them. And it's not the way that you actually think about, let's say, video games, because if you don't give a shit about racing games or you don't give a shit about sports games, then you don't really care to have those things. Yeah, I don't care about party video games, but like I want a bunch of different party games for different groups because of you people. Never know and who will be over. Yeah. And different formats and different groups of people with different weights. You want different weights of games. That's another thing. Like sometimes you can like appreciate you're some sort of Somalia. Yeah, you can pre you can appreciate something like Machikoro where I don't think it's like the greatest thing ever done, but oh hell, like it's easy to bust out and it's easy to explain and uh it's still gonna provide you with a lot of thinking and choices and the people yeah. at the table will enjoy it. I know what you mean, but at the same time, I feel like there are certain types of games that I know I don't have to have. Yeah. I don't know what they are. I, I have a hard time like yeah, can, can expressing I, I, for it me, or explaining it. For me, it's kind of increasingly... Um, so, so De Cthulhu Death May Die might be one of the first that I knew that, like, there is just no chance. Because that is almost... That is almost the uh, board game version of like a uh, of Yakuza, you know, where you not the same thing, but but you're meant to play it for 10 billion hours. You're meant to have like if I had a group that I consistently had like a meetup on a day of the week and I played with these people and it would have to almost be business like it wouldn't be friends. We wouldn't be friends. We could never look each other in the eyes like that. We wouldn't even maybe have each other's phone numbers, but we would meet in a in like a, a, a game shop or something, a local game shop, and just grind out Cthulhu Death May Die. Like, yep, this is what we do. On Thursdays, we meet up. We play the next thing. Everyone is all caught up. We all know the rules. We don't invite new people. We, this is what we do. And if, and if you're that kind of person, and there are plenty of people like that, there's even people like that that like I listen to, like we were talking about... Uh, Ever, so very wrong about games like they see they are some of the kind of people that would do that and just meet up and meet up and meet up and keep playing through a campaign of descent or something like that then that would be the kind of game that i could be really interested in but why would i i, I didn't end up backing cthulhu death may die i almost wanted to keep it just because i think i could have turned it around and sold it for like a crazy amount but then at that point like who am i what then if you're yeah, going to do that do the work? then if you're going to do that you may as well go for broke and buy like 5 of them and then start trying to sell them because i don't i think that that game with the with the retail price on that already and if you know anything about eric lang games holy holy hell in a handbasket those games uh have issues with money and then there's also the whole other thing with kickstarter that's kind of interesting with kickstarter because of the way kickstarter exclusives work sometimes you get games like blood rage where there's all this content and that is outside of the uh retail game and people already like it a lot at retail and then you have kickstarter like one figurine and you know that being a like the wolf or whatever the werewolf is like 110 dollars on ebay for this little 15 dollar add-on in the campaign and I and I I could have stuck with Death May Die and done that, and I think I could have had a good return, but that's neither here nor there. And so yeah. so that's a, that's a part of what I am starting to turn away from, knowing that like despite the fact that Cthulhu Death May Die has almost everything, like gameplay looks good, uh, aesthetic value off the charts, 
Um, I like Lovecraftian themes, but not always. Uh, it seems like it would have been the kind of thing that I would have bought in the beginning of backing board games, and now that's kind of the starting to be uh, something I'm not interested in. I did back... Uh, so, Simon, Cool Mini or Not, released another game as they on Kickstarter, as they do constantly, um, and yeah. it's called Starcadia Quest, and that came out on Kickstarter today. Oh, I was just looking at that, and I was like, huh, this looks fine. Yeah, so so I backed it, but it's in the beginning of the campaign, and I think I probably might slip off of that as well. Uh, I think that maybe an, to add an addendum onto what I was talking about with Cthulhu Death May Die, maybe another thing that I'm starting to get turned off of is heavy mini board games. Because with, with I've seen with, like, Scythe is like a beast, is like a beast monster. And and Scythe isn't necessarily about like the mini qualities and having two billion minis, but it ends up being with two billion minis at this point with all the mods and all the uh, different um, expansions. Um, but that is a problem to lug around a little bit. And, uh, you know, setting those up and doing all that stuff with the minis can sometimes be a little much. Um, yeah, it sucks to be the guy. Yeah. Um, the guy with the scythe. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Starcadia Quest looks kind of cool. I don't know if I'll stick to it, but it's another one of those Simon games where I think that there, I wonder if there's going to be a reckoning for them. It kind of seems like they might uh, hit a plateau where they're just too many people are buying too many. Oversaturation. Yeah, they're oversaturated. But they oversaturate the market on their own concept. Like, if you're going to... You know what? You know what's an easy buy for me these days? You know what's an... Or, or has always been an easy buy? Something like uh, I th- Villages, right? There's that... There was this little card game that came to Kickstarter. Oh, that looks so good. That, that like, looks so elegant and so sexy. And it is, like, a thinky kind of... It's... I feel like it's along the lines of like a splendor where it's probably going to require like a minute or two of explanation and then you pop it out and the players get it under start understanding as it goes. But it kind of is one of those like almost dominion kind of things where you can play it a billion times if you really wanted to and that it always kind of surprise you with certain aspects of it. And that's cheap and it's easy to get around and it's not there's like they could have had a miniature for every single one and they could have also thrown in a board where there's like a physical board representation of the village and maybe there would be some sort of like area control and denial and there's miniatures representing every piece but it doesn't do that it's just a bunch of cards and because of that it like almost makes it a lot more appetizing maybe i don't want uh to buy to back something that's 200 dollars because of all the resin in it and that if I was ever going to get it, that I would have to lug it over like a 30 pound box filled with like 400 minis. And then when we started playing, I would, I would have to get out like tons of minis on the table ready to go in case they uh, occur in that game. That's a mess. Yeah. Um, would you ever would you join a meetup? Have you been looking into it? Have you given it any thought? Not currently. It's kind of a little bit hard um having three days completely not to myself. Like maybe if I worked a nine to five and then was able to, to like leave work to go to somewhere and kind of, uh, fold that into my schedule. But I, I work every moment of Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then Tuesday. What? No excuses though. My, uh, my meetup is on a Wednesday at 7 PM. You could do a Tuesday meetup at 7 PM. If you looked for one, maybe, I don't know. Most of them are, most of them are weeknights. 
Yeah. Most people don't do meetups on the weekend. But it's awesome because uh, board games are expensive. And going to these meetups, you can sample a whole bunch of games that you don't have to buy yourself. So when I went to a meetup this week, speaking of being a sommelier, I played Vinhos, uh, which is the game by, uh, what is that guy's name? The, the guy who did Escape Plan. It's on the tip of my tongue. Lacerda? Lacerda. Yeah, so Lacerda. Isn't it insane? Did... Well, how cool is it, by the way, that that we're that a year, like less than a year in, and it just excites me the way that I look at these board game designers. You yeah. know, you know something that like. Have you played the new Daviao? <laughs> yeah, you know, you know something that like that there's certain designers where they're starting to be like you. You throw that name out, and then you give me a price, and I'll and I will name it. Um, what probably one of the most exciting things I currently have on Kickstarter that I'm backing is there's a Queen Games, which I already respect the name. I already respect you know Queen Games and what they've done. Uh, haven't even played. Uh, king domino or queen domino or anything like that but um they are releasing a triple pack of these three games and the games actually all look really really cool and interesting and one of them is a repurposed game that uh, that is repurposed to be a 1960s diner game and it has kind of a similar but much better uh aesthetic than food chain magnate it looks like a lighter version of the food chain magnate but with like a board and uh, well, like Fuji Magnet kind of has a board, but more of like a consistent board and these other things to it. Point is, uh, artwork all done by Ian O'Toole. Oh, I know that guy. Yeah. And so, and, cool. so that was one of the things that like, I, I looked through that. Queen Games, per- my ears perked up. Three different games. All the games look really interesting. All the games are play tested to hell. Some of them are re-implementations. One of them is a re-implementation of an already successful game, and uh, they are giving it a 1960s diner aesthetic with Eno Tool. And that was the thing where I read Eno Tool and was like, "Yeah, I gotta have it. Give me it." Also, by the way, in the implementation, it, it had this whole thing about uh, how they're adding this concept called milestones. And this concept of milestones in this game would be like you would meet a certain criteria to pick up a milestone that could give you sort of a perk for the rest of the game. Mm, that sounds wholly original. I but know. The thing that we're getting away from is that I played Venus, and I'm glad that I played it because I know that I don't have to buy it. Because that is a very beautiful, but just it's it's too much. It's it's the kind of game where you can fall behind early and there's no way of coming back and it's very long. So it's like, oh, I made a mistake in the first 20 minutes of this game and this is a three-hour game and I can't simply walk away. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the uh, issues that people have uh, put against different euro style games including like food chain magnate yeah paul who uh, paul who i think would consider himself someone with discerning tastes uh i assume he seems like very his nose is kind of a little upraised sometimes when i talk about certain games uh he didn't like food chain magnate and that shocks me but, he, his but compl- i think he'd like it, it the second time yeah his main complaint was that kind of same thing was that it's a game where you can fall ahead early and have zero fun, and that's part of it. 
Yeah, but with Venos, it is such a more difficult game to learn and understand than Food Chain Magnate, where Food Chain Magnate has actually very little rules past the initial set. Like, it's not a game that requires a 30-minute primer on iconology. Thank God. It's not Gaia Project or Terramiska. Yeah. I'm I'm thinking though that since I played Venos, I'll be able to enjoy Lacerda's other games, uh Gallerist, Lisboa, and Escape Plan when that comes out just a little more. Okay. Grateful to have played it, don't need to play it again. And I am going back to that meetup tomorrow, and I was planning on bringing root, but I don't have root. So now I'm wondering if I want to bring something, and if I don't, if I want to go still. You have plenty of stuff to bring, though. I do have plenty of stuff to bring. I could bring Clank in Space. Ooh. Because that game has been on my mind all week after I gave it the first playthrough. And, you know, so I'm a big fan of Clank. For those who don't know, Clank is a deck-building dungeon crawler where essentially what you're doing is you start out the the game with a default set of cards. Everyone has the same thing. You go into this fixed dungeon uh, and try to grab a relic out of the dungeon and escape. And the first person who escapes sort of begins this timer where it's going to be more and more difficult and harrowing uh, for the people still in that dungeon. So the game sort of has this built-in timer to it. One of the uh, things that was sort of a a knock against Clank was that a player could go in, grab the easiest, simplest relic they can find, and just run out. And this doesn't always work in practice. They won't always win the game, but it it could kind of mess with the game if people want to really get a good deck going or want to see some sort of engine be developed, that can be cut short by by them essentially being forced to play that early game strategy just because one player has chosen to leave early. I feel like you I levied I mean? that, that same complaint. And it's not even necessarily that the complaint, like you said, it's not even necessarily that the complaint is like that it it is all powerful, but that it makes the game less interesting. Clank in Space has fixed this because Clank in Space has a bunch of different things going on. So first, Clank in Space has a modular board. The beginning of the board and the end of the board are always the same. The beginning of the board is where the players enter. The end of the board is where you're picking up the relics. But the middle of the board is modular. And there's all these different ways to traverse it, where there's this hyperloop, which will shoot players from one end of the board to the other. There are teleporters, which you can essentially buy in a shop, and then you can teleport from one pad to another pad. But most importantly, what this game has is this game locks you out of that end room until you complete a couple of objectives. Essentially, what happens is you need to go through the board and hack these access points. And once you've hacked the access points, uh, you get access to that final room. And what this means is that everyone is aware of the pace of the game. Sure, someone could you know, 
get go to those access points as quickly as possible, grab the earliest relic and try to leave. But there's more lead up time to understand and to anticipate that a player is going to do that. And more importantly, it's just a harder, more difficult thing to go for. You can't rely on having that early game strategy. Most people, they're going to be spending more time and it's going to make for a more tense and interesting game where you're actually building a deck that can have an engine to it. And they make those engine options a little more interesting in Clank and Space uh, because they've added a lot more synergies in this game where they've added three factions to the game. And essentially, if your deck contains like multiple of the same faction, you're going to get additional benefits. Like you might get the card will give you draws where it wouldn't before. It might give you additional victory points if you build your deck in a specific way, or it might just give you more movement or attack power throughout the dungeon. But I think one of the things that I think that was a lot of thinking. I think that my favorite part about Clank in Space, though, is the way that it ends. Because in the original Clank, you're sort of all heading towards the same place. And sometimes a person will get there before you. So someone, you might be running after the same artifact and someone snatches it before you, and then you have to go get another artifact, but then you're both running towards the same exit. Clank in Space makes this a little trickier because the board has four different escape pods in it. And only one player can go to one escape pod. So two people might be heading in the same direction, but you need to make a decision on whether is his deck faster than mine? Does it offer him more mobility? Can I beat him there and leave and leave him stranded? Or is he going to leave me stranded? And what's going to happen? And that makes for, I think, one of the best endings to a board game uh, that I've ever seen. Yeah, I, I don't want, I didn't want to interrupt you because uh, I wanted to hear about Clank in Space, but since I played Clank, the original Clank, at your house, that has been one game that I certainly have never gotten out of my mind. I think that it occupies a sort of heretofore unoccupied spot for how interesting it is how unique it is how modular almost it is then like how you know finding the different abilities to even buy cards and building different decks you might have never been able to build uh with the other players being a whole thorn in your side and interacting in other ways and then just the fun components and the whole uh drawing from the dragon bag and stuff like that and the different probability that comes out of that uh such an unbelievably good game and then any kind of complaint and like i I've, i loved it and i've played it i think four times yeah. and every time I've, we've played it at your house i think it was all we played at least one game and then said do you want to just set it up for another one uh i don't think anyone ever wants to play one game of clank uh and to hear about but you know what's cool is that clank in space is more epic it lasts longer it's bigger yeah, like but that. It also has that modularity so that if you wanted to play a second time, you flip over those boards and you are in a different map. Yeah, that is so cool. Um, I, I love hearing the escape pod thing sounds like a stroke of brilliance because that adds that does add such an interesting, unique, uh, scary moment of people racing at the same time and kind of like looking at each other like, will they make it first or will I make it first or do you need to go somewhere else? 
Uh, just everything about the 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 general Clank uh, gameplay is incredible, and it sounds like Clank in Space really does so much for it. So that is really exciting. I can't wait to play that. I where when the next time I see you, I hope we play that. And you know, there's another version coming out, new expansion to Clank in Space next Thursday. What is the you know what it, what is coming along with it? So it is Clank in Space Apocalypse. It's going to include a few more of the modular boards that you could flip between, but it also includes some new cards and it includes scenarios. And the scenarios are really cool because what they do is they change what happens with those black cubes. So in Clank, the way that you take damage is as you move through the dungeon, your character makes noise. And those noise is represented by these cubes that go into a bag. When the enemy attacks you, you shake the bag and you draw cubes. And there is a set number of black cubes, which generally do nothing. And then if you draw your color, you take that damage. Clank in Space Apocalypse is changing it so that those black cubes are now going to have an effect. So, for example, those black cubes might make it so that... Uh, might make it so that uh, every time that the that a black cube falls onto this track, something new happens. Like uh, one of them is each player trashes two program cards from their from your hand. If if this uh, row fills up with black cubes, the programs are uh, what allow you to buy things in the game. One of them makes it so that you flip over the goblin card and that he becomes much stronger as you fill that out with black cubes. But the thing that also makes this very cool is that not only is it using... Um, like things that pre-exist in the game. Those black cubes are already a part of the game. They're part of Clank. And this is just like a new way of using them. Uh, but it's also offering like eight different of these scenarios where one of them is like the homicidal AI. And you're interacting with it because every time that those black cubes go onto the track, you can then interact with it by pulling the black cubes off where you can discard a program from your hand. You can choose to, to take a black cube off of the board and then draw a card. So it's essentially, I, I, I guess it's like Scythe, right? Where you have all of these different things that are modularly changing the game, but it's all within the existing framework of the game where very little of Apocalypse is going to be brand new. There's going to be brand new cards that harness those black cubes and there's going to be the new scenarios and the boards but if you know how to play Clank, then you already know how to play the expansion. There's nothing new to learn. And I think that's really cool. Wow. I look forward to that. Anything else? I played One Night Ultimate Werewolf. And uh, have you played that? Have you played any of these sort of social deduction style games? No, I got Secrets because it, re- it was on cheap and it was uh, during that sale. Um, and I'm kind of excited for that. I've heard good things and bad things, but I think it's gonna be fun and it was cheap. Um, but I don't really have any other social deduction games. And I love that concept a lot. I actually really like it in, uh, bigger board games. Um, I I think that one of the things I like the most about TI almost is a less, a more abstract version or less abstract maybe version of the social deduction of like, what can I trust other players to do or not do and stuff like that. Uh, like, I love the, that idea, that concept of like, can you trust people and stuff like that? Maybe the thing or, uh, 
uh, Dead of Winter is what I'm the is also is maybe more of what I'm talking thing. about. But um, so let me tell you a bit about One Night Ultimate Werewolf. It plays super fast. You could get through a round of it in like five to ten minutes. And the thing that's cool about it is that you're going to want to play it multiple times, and you're going to essentially develop a meta of the game. But the way that it works is that you're going to put down a couple of uh, character cards in the middle of the table. Some of them will be werewolves. Some of them will be villagers who have no special effects. And some of them will be these more complicated werewolves and villagers that might do special things. So, for example, there's a villager who allows you to switch your the, your card with another card. But essentially what happens is that you put some of these cards in the middle of the table, uh, you select one, you look at your card, and then everybody closes their eyes. And what's cool about this is that there's essentially an app that can lead you through what happens next, where you choose which characters are in the game, and it directs you and leads you on what to do. But essentially what happens is everyone closes their eyes, and the first thing that happens is all of the werewolves open their eyes, and they look at each other. So all the werewolves know who the other werewolves are. Then throughout the night, some of the other villagers might wake up. So the robber might wake up and swap his card with somebody else's card. There's another card called the, the Insomniac. And what she does is right before morning, she wakes up and looks at her own card to confirm whether or not she is still the Insomniac or if someone has changed her into someone else. There are certain werewolves that can turn people from villagers into other werewolves. And the thing that's interesting about this is so everybody wakes up and the players have to point at people. And if they agree to all point at the same person, that person dies. So that person reveals who they are. If they're a werewolf or if they're, if they're a werewolf, then the villager team wins. And if it's not a werewolf, then the werewolf team wins. But there's some interesting mixes on this because certain werewolves can turn villagers into werewolves, but that villager does not know that they've been turned. Okay. So, yeah. so as the werewolf, you're you're trying to make sure that not only are you trying to turn the blame on other players, but you're also trying to make sure that you're protecting your other werewolves. Because if one of them dies, then you lose. But I think my favorite role is this role called the Tanner because the Tanner is this guy. He's a villager who hates his job so much that he wants to die. And if the Tanner dies, then nobody wins except for the Tanner. So the Tanner wants to convince you that he is the one who you have to kill. Where if he thinks there's a lot of villagers, he wants you to think he's the werewolf. And if there's a lot of werewolves, he wants you to think he's just a villager. But really, he just wants you to kill him because he hates his job. I like that. Um, it, it sounds really similar to the game I was just talking about, uh, Secrets, which is kind of cool also because you're there's CIA, KGB, and then there's a hippie. And it kind of follows the same rules where CIA and KGB don't know who's on their team necessarily, but they want to find out through deduction and then ha and then work together. Uh, and then the hippie wants uh, to have the lowest amount of points. And, like, it, it, there's cool stuff. I, I kind of want to bring that next time if we get enough people. Maybe uh, for uh, um, Labor Day, I'll bring that. Because yeah, we yeah. might have enough people to, like, rock with we that. 
we can even play like uh, one of the cool things about these games is that they take up very little table space. So if we set up on the kitchen table, we could actually just set up a game of like werewolf on the coffee table as a break. Yeah, right? a filler. And, and that's why they so, call them fillers, right? And it would be so interesting to do that, like in the middle of a TI game where it's like, hey, we just ate lunch before we get back into TI. Let's play this game of werewolf so we can see how much we don't trust everybody right now. Yeah. <laughs> you would be fun to play that game with. That's all the games that I've gamed. I'm I'm looking forward to Labor Day weekend. I'm even looking for I have I have a lot of games to play. And you know, I've got a five day weekend coming up. So I've got I'm off from Friday the thirty first to Tuesday the fourth. So I hope to get some some good games in. Well, all right. I mean that really isn't all the games you game because you didn't talk about uh Castles of Mad King, Ludwig or Scythe. Uh, so, oh, yeah. So we you, played those together. So you and I hung out on last last Thursday, and we played Castles of Mad King Ludwig, and then we played Scythe with some of the Fenris stuff. I'll talk about the Fenris stuff later, um, but uh, Mad King Ludwig has been on my mind a lot. That is a really that's cool a, game. A terrific game. Th- there's a couple of really brilliant things. I think I know you've talked about this before, but it is a game where... Uh, everyone around the table is building a castle, a physical little castle. Uh, you, there is basically like top-down slice of all the different rooms, and the rooms are shaped in different ways, so they fit together in different ways, and part of the game is that. It's just literally fitting together the rooms correctly. Um, but there is uh, this whole mechanic where the round starts off with a master builder. They look at all the pieces that are going to be in play next round, and then they value them at different things. And then people around the table have to pay the master builder for it. So that so they play in this whole mechanic where uh, they're valuing what they think other people want and what they could possibly pay. And finally, they have to pay the uh, bank for whatever they want. And there's a lot of cool stuff. And I know you talked about it. But I think one of the things that I, I would want to mention is that uh, not a lot of games get some of this stuff right. And and I, I, I really appreciate when a game is fun every second. Uh, Castles of Mad King Ludwig is fun every second um, because I felt like as you as you're playing the game, you're playing different. You're kind of playing different roles, and and, and all those roles are uniquely fun. It's fun to be the master builder because you it get is. you get paid the entire round, and you get to make all these interesting choices and about what things are going to cost. And then when you're not being the master builder, it's fun to look at what's up there and and further build your thing, your castle, and look at what other people are building and what they might want and what might you might be able to easily build for cheap and uh, go for all these different. There's there's tons of like really fascinating stuff that is uh, done extremely well in the game. So every player has this like one thing I think could have been really complicated is the bonuses for completing rooms so like i said all the rooms are these different uh rooms that you you kind of flip to fit together like this insane puzzle piece but if you close up all the doors to a room then you've completed the room and you get a bonus based on what type of room it is and there's this player board this like player aid that shows you what those bonuses are and there's there the bonuses are explained simply and they're powerful interesting bonuses so going for that is fun um and finding different synergies 
uh, is is fun and getting more objective cards to get these secret objectives and and going off in your own direction is fun and playing towards the public objectives is fun and just every part of the game I felt was fun and and I, I think another thing is that like some games kind of end uh, and Scythe is a game by the way that that we played afterwards that has I think a really unsatisfying ending and I think every single time we played it it has this uniquely unsatisfying ending for a couple different reasons uh for the for the issue of its pacing where it starts to pace really quickly at the end and uh when someone comes online you might not realize yet and you might be kind of like working on your engine and then suddenly your strategy goes out the window because someone else just like put plops down three objective markers in a turn and uh you kind of don't have a lot to show for you kind of look at your board like well there's a lot of stuff i was planning but the whole time i was kind of staring down at my unique board and i was a little bit too absorbed by that and i think that's one of the issues with scythe and uh, uh there's just plenty of things that make it kind of unsatisfying climactically but with mad king ludwig i feel like at the end of the game there's some initial excitement anyway just to like building that thing like you at the at the end you feel like you did you did something like it's fun to build up like a lego castle or something so in the same kind of way it has there's a sense of joy for just fitting the pieces together to begin with and then when the game ends uh you can just kind of look down and like maybe you built a kind of cool castle or like you're proud of the choices you made and that's fun and maybe even if you don't win on the actual scoreboard like you're kind of excited about that i also really like when games uh it, it it's kind of a little bit similar to the way that uh um arjun the consortium works where there's all this scoring stuff that goes into the end that like even when the game has hit its final turn the scoring is exciting because people you're yeah. scoring you you go around the table and there's this whole um sort of routine uh, and awards section where you're seeing how people scored out on the public objectives, and then you're doing the the kind of secret arts in the consortium, like laying down all your secret personal objectives and and suddenly jumping up points in that way. Uh, and all those things are kind of exciting, and they make for an exciting game turn to turn, and they make for a pretty beautiful end uh, by the end. So like I yeah, I, but but also I guess one of the things that's cool is that. Uh, in Argenta Consortium, somebody's one of the secret objectives is everybody's secret objectives. And in Ludwig, that's not the case. And I think that it makes it the master building phase especially cool because pretty early on in the game, it was obvious that you were going through uh, looking for L-shaped pieces and bedrooms. So people could sort of look at your board and it was kind of obvious. So they could actually price things around how much money you had because they knew, okay, so Ryan has 9,000 credits and I want him to buy something while I'm the master builder. So I want to price this bedroom or this L-shaped piece so that he can afford it. But I don't want to make it too cheap because I know that he wants it. And, and I think that that's a pretty neat way to... Uh, prevent the game from being just about your own board where in order to be a successful master builder you need to be considering not just the public objectives but the private objectives that every player might have 
based on what their castle is currently showing you. Yeah, in that sense, there's some kind of brilliant game design with the table balancing itself. So one of the really powerful um, room completions is getting 10,000 gold for finishing an outdoor area. And we had one of our players uh, constantly building outdoor areas. And because of that, she was rolling in money to the point where like you almost couldn't price her out of anything. But that does mean that if you are the master builder and you look through for an outdoor area, you can price that ridiculously high because you know that one person around the table wants that and that they will pay for it. And that's like an interesting way to be like, you have too much money and you're going for this strategy. So I know I can like start burning through your bank. Um, yeah, I, I mean, there's even a lot to be said about the overall design. Like I, I mentioned this at the time, but, uh, uh, something that I figured out without having to be explained to me was that the, uh, backs of all the rooms show the different types of rooms that could possibly be in there in that set. So, uh, I kept finishing bedrooms because my one of my secret objectives was obviously uh, to finish bedrooms, but it was a good secret objective. It was three bonus points for every bedroom that I had on my board. So, like, that's doable. And uh, I, whenever you finished a bedroom, you got to pick zero, one, or two of any tile and put them on top of the draw list so that people would have to draw those, which meant that I could finish a bedroom, draw two... Uh, rooms off of rooms that had bedrooms in the stack, if this makes any sense, and yep, put them on top to of the it. of the draw pile, which meant that I kept making people draw bedrooms. So and, and it, we kept getting to charge you for those bedrooms. Yeah, but it's a cool thing. Like like I, I feel like the iconography and symbology of it makes a lot of sense, and it's easily explained. And like there's a lot going on in that game. And it certainly represents that. It certainly represents a pinnacle of easy to learn, impossible to master design, where you will never see the same game of Castles of Mad King Ludwig ever done ever, due to the fact that the public objectives are random, the private object objectives are random, and the tiles appearing are random, and the tiles themselves start to create synergy. So you have all these different considerations going uh, on at any point in time that just it, it definitely. Uh, satisfies that caveman brain of like having all these things go off of like i i had like moments were just so exciting from a gameplay perspective like i wanted to keep building those i wanted to keep building kitchens uh because i also had a bonus for kitchens i got an outdoor area that only had two uh two room connections so i put it on to the my my castle at first i only need to connect it once and then i got a kitchen to connect it to which gave me ten thousand gold and the kitchen itself only had one connection and the 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 outer area had a bonus for connecting to a kitchen so i got a bonus based on that and the kitchen had a bonus for being uh connected to a utility room which has no which they none of them have and only they only have one connection so i hit that got an extra connection at the end of the game pulled an extra objective card that gave me a few extra points and like that kind of stuff is exciting. And you had a moment where you finished, like you went last, and you did a typical James, like 
like going last and everyone else is done playing but you did like kitchen into kitchen into downstairs into you know all this kind of stuff yeah you got to pop off well you, you don't want to pop off when, when everybody's thinking about their own game you want to pop off when you're the last one going and everybody the only thing they can choose to do is watch what you're doing yeah you like that spectacle also i love the spectacle um i'm glad you enjoyed it you know there is a expansion for that game which includes like a building within the confines of a moat with some additional uh rooms but part of me thinks i can get a few more plays out of this base game because i think it's so good just the way it is yeah i saw the moat thing and i don't know if that that gave me excitement because some of the some of the excitement is just being able to build off in all these different weird directions and having more confines. Like I think an important balance aspect of that game is the fact that everyone has public and secret objectives. And then when they start having to be forced to buy tiles that are just like, well, this tile is good, but it currently doesn't even match my objective. It me- it means that everyone starts building off in different weird directions. So the value of different rooms and different strategies go all over the place. And if you uh, make it so that the game is a little bit more grounded and you have this moat, then you might have less wild strategies because people got to, you know, they have to, they're more confined from a gameplay perspective, which means they might be more discerning about their choices choices for buying rooms. Maybe they they don't buy a wacky room that doesn't necessarily fit with their overall scheme, just because they realize like it's maybe the best thing they can do this turn. Maybe they sit back and they're just like, "Nope, can't, don't have the space, can't do it. Got to get a, a a better piece for me." I don't know. Maybe it could be good, um, and uh, but it doesn't necessarily fill me with excitement the way some expansions would. Does Scythe fill you with excitement? Does Rise of Fenris fill you with excitement? I guess so. Um, uh, should you we put so. should we put a big spoiler in it in here or finish the podcast? No. All right. You really think that Scythe? Counts? I don't know. Like, so do people take this seriously? Like, so so here's a weird thing seriously? about this. Scythe came out with the Rise of Fenris expansion, and it's a campaign expansion that is like semi-legacy, where it, it everything comes in secret tuck boxes, and as you play the campaign, you would reveal mods to the to the base game. And I I I, I am all sorts of ways on it, but I guess I do fall of on the uh I I do fall to the side of like the spoilers aren't that important because. Scythe is a game that is very, very, from its core, is meant to be played over and over and over again to the point that it develops a a meta with your group. It is a forever kind of board game. You're not meant to play it once or twice and put it away. If you like it, you're supposed to keep playing it over and over and over again and modifying it and doing all this stuff. So when you release a kind when an expansion like this where it's uh an eight game campaign uh that adds all these mods the important thing necessarily isn't the campaign the important thing is the mods think about it like uh having locked characters in a fighting game like if if i was going to play if they were going to add a story segment to dragon ball fighters that at the end of the story segment they gave you a secret unlockable character but then beforehand people were saying this is what the character was uh i don't know if i would care because 
the the at the at the end of the day, which is our new quote is our new uh, outro. That's our new thing. Um, at the end of the day, the game is about the gameplay of it right it's not about the surprise it's not about necessarily a legacy game where the surprise you, of fenris yeah you're not it, you don't need to be surprised as much as like the important thing is getting those mods and the important thing i mean in, in yeah, my in my it, other example like like would you care about a fighting game character being ruined that was an unlockable secret unlockable character if you were going to play hundreds of hours of that fighting game, I don't think you'd give a shit because the point is that the character is there. The point is the fun part about it is, is playing with that character. Right. And it's but, not necessarily but sometimes. Yeah. But what about smash? Right. Like, cause when you were a kid and when you were unlocking all the characters in melee and someone told you that Sonic and Fox were in the game, it was pretty exciting. Right. I well, mean, like, Sonic to, wasn't to, in melee, but think about that. And yeah, no, they weren't, but there was like a, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a, uh, some April fool's articles that were like floating around back then on how you unlock Sonic and Fox. In Sonic Smash and Tails? Brothers Are you Midway. saying Sonic and Tails? Sonic and Tails. Yeah. I think there Sonic is a Fox, Fox already, you know, I'm thinking Sonic Fox. The, he is the, the most fighting amazing game fighting game player. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if, what if smash comes out? And you don't know it, but you're playing through the game. You do something special, and all of a sudden, Fenris joins the fight. Right? right? Like that's exciting. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It is exciting. And, and weirdly enough, Smash is what I thought about is like a game that used to excite me with unlocking a new character, and you first get that initial surprise of like, oh my god, a new character. That's another thing I can put tons and hundreds of hours into because that's all I did for a, a long time as a kid. Play Smash Melee. Um, but, but um, yeah. So if the, so if it's if it's something like you're a, a scythe freak, then obviously like you get to decide that it's a spoiler, and we've given you enough not enough time. And that being said, let's go into it. Um, I did play the entire campaign, or almost the entire campaign, before I left for your house uh, the day before. I will say that. It is a really well done campaign. It is excellent. I really liked the writing. I like the story. And I think it might be one of the best done legacy style games because it, the the idea, I think I love that format of adding a whole ton of mods to a pre-existing game that people already know and love and then giving them to them in a surprising way rather than like, here we just put 11 mods and dump them in with this one thing. They have this amazing super cool distribution method of the mods with like playing the campaign and suddenly opening a box and realizing you have this big new component of this pre-existing game that you already love to play with uh so i love the story i love the story so much in fact that uh the that day that i finished that i did as much as i played like six games in the campaign uh i did a uh uh, platelets donation and i sat there uh, for two hours reading the manual front to back, not only rules, but uh, the story and the different uh, area ways, the different branching paths of the story and how it could go. And it really gave me an appreciation for the lore behind sites. It's actually a really cool game. I kind of want to actually check out a steampunky or like oil punk, I guess, game uh, uh, novel that, that kind of fits in with that theme because the writing is good, but the world is amazing. Um, so that being said, there's been enough space for spoilers uh the expansion com- contains two new factions and a, a whole host of mods some of which are good and some of which i think are kind of uh 
Yeah, can you wonky. tell me about some of these mods? Because I think that, you know, characters are cool. Uh, and, and obviously there's a lot of replayability there. But I feel like modules are exponentially more interesting because they add something new for every character in the game, right? Yeah. Um, so I think tell me about some of these. Some of it I, we haven't even had a chance to mess around with. Like we didn't we when we played, we kind of didn't include the mods because we had new people and I kind of didn't want to overweight everything. And I think if we played again with people who understood it, we it, I would feel more comfortable doing this. Um, and some of the mods are meant to actually change my complaints with the games. There's a there's a lot of cool things. I think one so of the, now you have new complaints uh, or to. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, some of the mods are meant to uh, basically, I mean, the, the one of the cool things, I think about this expansion as like, you are a big, like, Quake fan or something, and you have the tools, you and now you I can, am. and now you can design a Quake map. Um, like you, like, like it almost gives you enough tools to be a modder of Scythe, because you have so many mods that like, any sort of gripe you would have with the game on pacing or anything like that or the way the game ends uh can be changed with the, with these mods so here's some of the mods other than the two new factions uh one of the factions actually plays off of this mod and it's called a mech mod where uh in the beginning of the game you can pick uh four random mods from this big pile of like 30 mods to put over your mechs uh, so typically in Scythe, when you unlock a mech and you drop it down on the board, you uncover a new rule. You get a new ability for your faction. And what this would you do... You know it. I know it. We all know yeah. it and love it. And and what this would do is that in the beginning of the game, you'd basically get your your faction randomly and your player board randomly, but then you'd get to look over mods. So maybe if there was a... Maybe if you liked a faction, something about a faction. So let, let, let's say Albion, which is a really, really cool faction. I, I like a lot about them. And I especially like their ability to, let's say, teleport to workers and flags. And maybe you love that. And you're like, I love that so much. But maybe you don't like the aspects of Albion that are more on fighting. So they have two different perks that are about fighting, and maybe the game isn't always about fighting, and maybe you don't really get a chance to do that much of it. So uh, the mech mods are this interesting thing where you can, before the game starts, look at a bunch of different mods and reevaluate what is going on in the game and what is going on at the board state and maybe a different direction you want to take that faction. So maybe you have a faction that's passive and you want to make them more aggressive or maybe you have a faction that's more aggressive and you want to make them more passive or you just straight up don't like one of the things. You're just like, this is so useless that like this is obviously the last mod that I would mech that I would unlock. So why don't I just cover it up with something I would find more interesting? So I kind of like that idea. We didn't play with that. Um, and you also got to wonder or worry that it homogenizes all the different characters to have that happen. Yeah, that that was my that was my big concern, because if everyone, let's say, modded everywhere on their board, then the only unique aspect of a faction would be their uh, faction their passive. Ability. Yeah. So that's it. Um, so I, I like it. I appreciate it. And it's cool, and uh, I kind of want to play with it at some point and see how it works in a full game, but I, I kind of shied away from it, at least for the first playthrough, especially with new people. Um, I will say that the mods are really interesting, and they add a lot of different dynamics to the game uh, that aren't on those faction boards. So it really is... That is, an, that is a... The mech mods are definitely for someone who has played Scythe too much. So you've gotten to the point where, like you don't need 
that you like you've gotten to the point where you're you're past it being about asymmetrical factions and more now you're to the point of like you want to build your own faction so that is so you know in that sense that's kind of cool the idea of like almost building out what your faction's perks will be uh and getting those kind of choices uh and that said like like i said you're not going to cover up every spot all the time or maybe ever um i think a lot of times like you would never want to cover up that plus two speed that's a really good uh, perk and stuff like that, and maybe you would want to cover up. Or maybe you want to add it. Yeah. Well, there's not that that mod doesn't exist. Ouch. The mods that exist. Too good. The mods that exist are interesting and play around with the game in different ways. So, uh, but they're not really pre-existing things you might have seen. What about river walking? They don't really play with river walking. Interesting. They are more about these different kind of cool. Like one of the one of the mods is kind of cool. It's like it's a like a spying mod where uh, you know how people independently wager the amount of strength they want to use. So like the way that you fight in Scythe is you like independently wager an amount of strength that you have, and you're gonna lose it at the end of the fight. Uh, but you you wager it, and you don't. And and one of the choices there is like a gambler kind of thing. Like, do you think you're just gonna lose? If you think you're just gonna lose, then just spend one strength. And don't spend a lot instead of actually trying to just like maybe win just you know save as much face as you can um and there's a mod that's a spy mod where you can uh uh wager first watch what the person wagered and then re-wager and stuff like that so there's there's some cool aspects to that that, that haven't been in the game uh and one mod that i think i should have maybe included that i i like a lot conceptually um, but I was kind of worried about how it would screw with the pacing a little bit. But I, I think that I was wrong to worry that it's called an infrastructure mod. And um, at the, it, similar to the mech mods, you would draw from this big pile in the beginning and uh, of these different random infrastructure mods. And they all do different things. And they're all one time use boosters. Think of it as like almost like round boosters for Project Guy or Terra Mystica, but they're game boosters. So they have this like unbelievably powerful thing that they can do once. Um, and by unbelievably powerful, like there are uh, individual uh, mo- infrastructure mods for stuff like the next either like mech. Uh, there's one for the mech. There's one for structure. There's one for upgrading and there's one for enlisting that makes it so that you burn it and that next one is free. So uh, wh- I think that's really interesting. And I think the point of that, uh, uh, listening to Stegmeier talk about it is that uh, it's that mod exists for uh, to make the game's early game faster so that people could get their economies and their engines online and then start to move about faster. So there'd be less wasted turns. You could save uh, you know, that mod, that infrastructure boost until you got to a point where you really wanted to take maybe like a movement action. And then below that, there's uh, an upgrade action and you don't have the oil. So maybe it makes you shy away from doing that. But maybe now uh, you can you can do two things on your board when you maybe could have only done one. It helps you further your your strategy and it lets you, you know, get your pieces out so you can start to vie for the land. I, I think that one of my big problems with Scythe has always been like the game feels like uh, a MOBA where both people are, 
you know, building up their gold economy and everyone's just kind of farming. And then all of a sudden the game ends and it's like, well, where was the team fighting? Like I, like I want there to be more interaction in Scythe. And I think that's a, that's a very common complaint um, is that like, if, if, if there isn't, if, if, I don't think Scythe should be fighting all the time, but I think that the threat of fighting should be stronger. Whereas like in Scythe, there sometimes is no threat of fighting. You're really not like necessarily worried all the time about people fighting over land for you. Uh, we haven't even the times we've played, we haven't even had people going for the factory really. Like I controlled it and no one really cared about it. And that's supposed to be a big thing because the factory counts as three territory thrones. I don't now I'm getting too deep. Okay, so the and the other mods. Um, you didn't stay on it though. I did stay on it for the end of the game. I I, I got it and then I I got it. I left and then I came back. And at the end of the game, I did get the bonus points for controlling the factory. Maybe it's just not always... I, I mean, maybe it's hard to understand, like, the wind conditions of Scythe. Like, they're not always, like, exactly clear. I, I understand the purpose of that because they don't want the game to be too much of, like, a math equation. But that doesn't mean it's not solvable, right? And if you took the time, you could quantify how much, you know, one action is better than another action. And I don't think that's always necessarily, like, good for a game to be, like, so obvious about, like, uh, this is the absolute perfect thing that you're supposed to do because it nets you the most points. Uh, but at the same time, clarity is good. Uh, that wasn't a very elegant argument, but I think that that's a tough, a tough thing to balance. Clarity in what sense? Like... Clarity of like further that the, the factory is this important to you. The factory should be more important than this or that. And obviously that's going to be different for everybody. It's going to be different for the type of strategy that you're going for and how you want to play the game. But I don't know like how good the factory is for me because, and, and maybe it's just because I haven't played a lot of Scythe. The, the tough thing about board games is that like a lot of board games take so long to play that it's it's just hard to play a game enough to really understand it. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things about Scythe and like I think a lot of maybe a lot of my complaints and a lot of other people's complaints because Scythe is, you know, very well respected in the community. It is currently on number seven for Board Game Geek, a, a, a asterisk that I always say what for whatever that means. And to hear just above great great western trail to hear people talk about it there are still absolutely people forever that have been scythe people who just play scythe and play scythe and play scythe and and they they enjoy it and still and i i feel like scythe is really a game that is to go back to the moba thing it's kind of like a moba where in the beginning you're not playing it you're just not playing the moba right i think that the real i think that similar to food chain magnate scythe is at a higher level, when you start playing it, you start to, if, if you're playing with a bunch of really competitive people, the game would get better because then you optimize and optimize and optimize. You have your perfect openings for every different uh, faction and you know how to get your economy up. You know how many mechs you want out, how to get enough strength and stuff and start moving around. And then at that point, that's when the game starts to really happen is like that like with better players i think that they're the 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 openings would be tighter and then it would lead to like 
uh, a a more like we need to get the factory because all of our scores are so similar that control over the factory is huge, not just for the factory card, but for the uh, like triple terrain control kind of thing. So so that like that would become more interesting with with uh, people who have a lot of experience with it. But we're kind of playing the MOBA when like, you know, there's no jungler and everyone goes, you have two, one, two, and there's no meta and people are just kind of doing whatever. And you think like, you know, this character is overpowered and it's not because you just haven't played enough to know. And that's like what Scythe feels like to me is that every time I play it, I just feel like I'm not playing it yet. And I don't fully understand it the way that I should. Is it too pretentious? To say that that I just said, no. Is it is Scythe too pretentious? I don't think so because I think Jamie Stegmeier has this uh, very unpretentious design. I think that it. I think that it'd be more common for people to say to look at Scythe and say that it's too easy or too bland or something. That that it's this like like you know like Paul kind of called it just like a dudes on the map kind of thing. And like I don't even know if that really works as a That's dudes the on the genre. map kind of thing. I mean, thing. it is a dudes I, on the map. I know, That's but I don't. I don't even think that that I don't even know if Scythe necessarily fits into that genre in like a big way like if it's dudes on the map then it's like almost like 10 percent dudes on the map it, it's just that i think that site looks simpler than it is and uh that like there is a lot more but you have to play it a lot and that importantly you have to be with people who have played it a lot to get all of it out because if if it feels like whenever i played scythe that the game is more of like everyone independently fumbling with their own player mat and then eventually someone fumbled the best and that was it. And that there wasn't really like if everyone was like killing it on economy and knew the choices, what they were making and and how to best optimize to get their their engine going. And then they started to move about. And then the other things like, you know, building lots of resources mm-hmm. for the point bonus at the end of the game and getting a lot of popularity and getting a lot of territory would start to be more important. And then those would lead to bigger, more interesting plays, like people taking control of land that has all these resources that were built up that were meant to be like a big win condition. Like someone just sat there building yeah. resources and then someone else like comes in like makes a big huge play to flip that terrain over to theirs despite yeah despite not winning i had a very intentional game of scythe where i felt like i knew what i was doing i probably could have done it better i made one big mistake at the end of the game i made a huge mistake uh, that made me lose i could have won i was one popularity point off of winning the game uh but I just made a mistake, lost the game. But I, I get it, you know. I I get it. Um, what are the other mods? So, I think maybe the biggest mod that I'm the most excited about that we didn't even touch was the there. I guess two and and that I would wrap up together are there's a war and peace mod. Uh, this cha- This is probably the thing that I think would become the closest to fixing any gripe that anyone would have with Scythe, because it completely changes the pacing. Because Scythe is about completing these basically these objectives that are these universal objectives that everyone has to put down their stars, and once the sixth one is put down, the game is over. But up till now. Uh, the game has, you know, the pacing, the maybe it's non people feel like it's non interactive and that uh, the game kind of rewards you for doing everything. The game, the, the, the way you put down the stars is like, you know, getting eight workers, uh, getting all your mechs out, 
so these are kind of more passive engine things. And then there's stuff like getting into fights is two of the stars. So uh, the there's a War and Peace mod. One, the Peace mod completely devalues fighting to the point where, like, the entire thing is really just about, like, completing your board and building up tons of resources. Like, one of the triumph spots is having 16 resources on one space. And that's, like, a big thing. Like, it's it's interesting to see that, like, uh, it's doing, like, encou- doing three encounters, uh, getting a factory card. You know, doing these things would change the value of the entire game. Like, up until now, Scythe has had a very static... Because the the win condition for everyone is different, but playing around this static objective, uh, the that's you know maybe been the the reason why the the, the symptoms of these this pacing or non interactivity is kind of due to the fact that you get rewarded for doing a little bit of everything. So everyone just kind of getting rewarded for doing you know their enlists or their mechs or building their structures, and it just kind of happens every game. And because of it, the game comes that those aspects become predictable. So the peace mod makes it so that it's all about this economy, and it turns it into more of a euro game. And then there's the war mod, which completely takes away uh, getting objective stars for basically non-hostile actions. So there are four spaces for winning in combat. There is like a space for having eight holding eight combat cards at the same time, uh, stuff like that. So. That would change the entire game because now if you play with the war mod, then people play the initial game as then it becomes more like a MOBA because then people play the initial game as an engine building and then everyone would have to would would be forced to start fighting to start getting near the end game uh, and start interacting because they need to. Um, And then uh, finally, there is a randomizer where there are like a whole kitchen sink of like. 30 different mods that you can randomize or build the way you want that will uh, completely change what that game would value. So if you built it like completely randomly, you'd have to look at that board and say, like, these are the things, this is the path to victory that I would go to rather than having a static like, yep, always, you know, I'm always going to finish my four mechs. I'm always going to do my foreign lists. I'm always going to do my structures. Um, So I think that's really cool. Uh, and I've talked about almost everything except for, I guess, the NPC character, Mad Tesla, which is a really weird mod, even done in a weird way. So there's a way to make him a, a, a player-controlled character, and literally in the rules, one of the things is you can give him in the beginning of the game to a player who got who you is weaker. You need to weaker. tell them what, what he looks like. You gotta, you gotta describe this it's guy. It's Tesla in a giant wheel. It's a resin. Can you describe what this a, wheel? Because this wheel—it's a resin figure of Tesla in a gigantic wheel. This wheel reminds me of something, but I can't put my finger on it. It's almost like a—it's almost like a—I don't know, like Blade Runnery or like something like future, bizarre, futuristic. Like you're in like a—he's in like a wheel that just is like a motorcycle, but it's just a wheel. He's inside of a wheel. Yes. So. Uh, there's two different ways to really play with this: the the uh, passive Tesla mod or the mad Tesla mod. The passive Tesla mod, uh, you can put him at the. You can do a couple things. You can either give it to a care a person in the beginning, and here's the wording on this: who you think is playing a bad faction. It's like Jamie. That's not the way you balance things. 
And also, that's kind of weird to be like, yeah, everyone at my table thinks this faction sucks, and you got it, so here you go, here's Tesla. And uh, Tesla is, like, overpowered, because the character counts as Well, a... you could just give it to a new player, right? Yeah, you I mean, can give it to that's... a new player. That's another thing, is, like, giving it to a new player as a means to balancing it out. So, the way it works is that he functions as a character and a mech at the same time. So, he, he, he gets all the rules at the same time. He can both act as a character and go to the factory and get a factory card or hit uh, uh, encounters to do encounter cards, which would mean that you could have a character and Tesla moving at the same time, basically to hit different encounters. Um, And he functions as a mech, so he can take any amount of resources and workers uh, wherever he goes, and he would get any bonuses that your characters or mechs get. So he would get the river walk or the plus speed and stuff that your characters get. Uh, and that's the way... And, and, and that, he's a combat unit, Yeah, and he's, and he's a combat unit. So you not only that, would you, but you would have a sixth combat unit, um, which also is very interesting. Um, so that is a way that you could play with them. You could also play with them in a, another way where the person who finishes, the thir- finishes three encounters gets him as a reward for finishing that third encounter. So on your third encounter, you would suddenly get... Uh, Tesla dropped down on that space as a reward, and like uh, I said before, yeah, like I said before, he would be a character in a mech. The other way that you could play with him is the Mad Tesla mod, which I think is really kind of cool, and I would maybe want to see it in in action. It just felt like way too much to drop on the table at that time. Um, so he would start out in the factory, and he has his own card that that uh, explains how his movement goes, and he has a dice. Uh, and the way it works is that there are the dice is a six-sided dice die, and uh, the hexagons in Scythe are six-sided. So basically, you roll a die to determine which hexagon he moves onto next. And then he would start moving around the map, ignoring any terrain, uh, being able to go over rivers or uh, lakes or whatever. And you move him once, and if he doesn't get into combat, you move him again. And he's going to get randomly into combat, and he's like unbelievably strong. But... Every time that you beat him in combat, you deal damage on his overall health based on the difference between the amount you wagered and the amount he wagered. So he starts off with uh, 18 health. Uh, his his health is displayed on the popularity tracker. And whenever you fight him, like let's say you wager 7 and he wagers 7, or no, you wager 10 and he wagers 7, then he takes 3 in damage. And he would basically just start randomly moving it throughout the game, uh, hurting people, uh, setting workers back to your starting place, and just moving around, being a nuisance. And then when he's finally defeated, he would give that player a 10 bonus gold. So he would be this like roving pinata. Is that good? Um, I kind of like it. I mean, I think it a- adds a little bit of like spark to Scythe that like... Scythe is this Cold War game, and I think it can kind of feel like a Cold War game. In a lot of other games we play, I I get a lot of excitement throughout the entire game, and I I, I like, there's there's games like, I don't know, TI kind of had me on the edge of my seat for a lot of the game. After we started, after we got basically an hour or two in, I just really got to, to, every turn was kind of exciting me, and seeing the, how the game was progressing, and seeing, you know, different things happening or realizing that things even could happen was exciting and uh you like i i wasn't ever like just staring down at my player mat and i think that with scythe a lot of times it just feels stuffy like you're just kind of staring at your player mat for a lot of the 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 game and then the game could kind of just end 
and it's just over and you're like wow i thought there's a couple more turns for me to uh, do more things, but I guess it's over. Let's just start tallying. And I think with with Mad Tesla, maybe it's kind of a cool addition to the game to create this this uh, unknown, this roving, randomized pinata that's going to go around and like knock people down and uh, randomly affect people in different ways, take over their spaces, fight them, like cause all these problems. And then finally, when he's starting to get low in health, maybe people start like moving onto him. Like, I got to be the last one to last hit him. So that would in itself create like another sort of tension and friction. I think it could be interesting. Um, I think there could be also, it could also add a little element of excitement to Scythe where uh, suddenly for, for once, at least once a turn, people like look up wait for the role of where Tesla is going and then like either breathe like a sigh of relief or just start getting like, you know, sweating like, oh shit, I should maybe start moving because I'm not really in a position to fight him and he's like really close to one of my areas. So I think that could be co- pretty cool. Um, other than that, uh, we did we played with one of the factions. Uh, we played with, uh, I one played with fa- Fenris. What? One of the new factions. Yeah, we one of the new factions. Four of them. I played with Fenris, and oh man, that faction seemed really powerful, and I could not get that to work in that initial play. I think that requires a different sort of strategy. Uh, one of the most interesting things was Fenris, you, 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 and this this would be a different conversation for another day, but but uh, I, the whole time I kind of had this sense of like, man, this faction, because before I lost with him, I, I, I kind of was thinking like, this faction's horseshit. Like, I can't believe that I feel like I'm the one who brought this game and I'm playing this new faction. And then now I'm explaining these rules that like almost seem like like just absolute complete. Like, I'm just making it up on the spot. Like, my dudes are just these weird, huge mechs and they're leaping spaces over and I'm not even near the factory. And now I leapt onto the factory. And then there's these influence tokens. And it's like, well, wait, hold on. You can put an influence token anywhere and then warp to it. And like. There's there's rules for that, but um, uh, it just felt like kind of like overpowered, so that I kind of almost had to rein it in, and that's a weird thing to say. It just felt like that if I was gonna play with this new faction for the first time, and people were gonna see it, and then I was gonna do all this weird shit with the faction, that it was gonna be like kind of this like, well, you brought over this thing to just to win and play like your overpowered faction. Does that make any sense? Like it almost felt like in some cases I had to like not be an asshole with that faction because I could have done a lot of like more jerk things, but, um, they're kind of cool. They have this whole negative, they have this influence, which are like these chips that they can put around the board, but they start with 16 of them and they, every one that they hold is a negative one, uh, for the end of the game. And they can start trying to give them out to people. And kind of the whole point of their game is to start getting rid of them as quickly as possible and not picking them back up again. So they can give them out to other people. The other faction, uh, Vesna, is built off of the mech mods. Uh, so she just gets a handful of mods, and she can completely reorganize her mech mods. But her mech mods are different, work in different ways. Uh, she has a cool river walk. She river walks onto to or from any area that has a structure. So an enemy structure or your structure. Um, I think that's pretty cool. And her, finally, her she has a really cool faction ability, which is this... Um, uh, she starts the game with three factory cards, which I think is kind of crazy. Uh, but whenever she uses a factory card, she burns it, and she can't use it again. Uh, so when she goes to the factory for the first time, she'll get a factory card, but she can only use it once. But that still kind of seems good, because in the games we've played, I've never really seen anyone using the factory card that often in yeah, a game. So I if agree. you end up using like 
the three starting ones, and then maybe you get a fourth from the factory. Maybe it's not even like like you you if you even use it the four times, maybe you used it more times, and someone would have even used it in the game if they got it. But yeah, it's definitely a good way to jumpstart. One of the things that you know, and, and we sort of talked about this already, but one of my sort of issues with Scythe, and and this goes back to the MOBA thing, is like the laning phase seems like there's some optimizing there, right? Where, oh, if you do this opener, then this is like the most optimal way to start with this faction. And that's kind of one of my, one of the issues because if you're playing with players of a variable skill level, and that always seems to be the case because it's just the way board gaming is, then somebody's going to be overwhelmed and somebody's going to be a little bored at the start of that game. Yeah, uh, I really wish that we gave uh, one of the people we played with, Charlene, uh, the Rusviet faction or something like that, something that would uh, be simple and then break the rules in a simple way. But she ended up picking probably one of the most complex factions, uh, the Togawa, which they're really meant to be fast. Like they have to move around the board fast, put down traps fast, and then they can start warping to the traps. And the concept of the traps never went into play in that game because she just didn't get the start that she needed. And because of that, she like basically didn't use utilize any unique things. And that's not on her. That's just like general board game stuff. She just didn't, you know, it's her first time playing. She doesn't even understand the rules of Scythe, much less the rules of this like definitely more complex faction. Um, so so it's also better against an aggressive group. That's a faction that, you know, benefits if everybody's moving around, not if everybody is uh, playing their clear. solitaire. Uh, is that scythe? Because that was a lot of scythe. Yeah, we're we're two hours and twenty minutes into this cast. That's too long. This is the deal with games. This is that's a lot. WTDGpodcast.com at sign WTDGpodcast iTunes. What's the deal with games? Rate, comment, subscribe to the show. Thank you, Ryan Galloway, and crying for the use of your music. We use the intro now to revive off the new album, Beyond the Fleeting Gales. You can find them at the Run for Cover Bandcamp. That was done excellently this time with no flaws. Monster Hunter announces a new character in Smash. And at the end of the day, Jamie Stegmeyer is confirmed for Smash Ultimate.